Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today, as you can probably already hear, is an unusual show. We're joining you live from Wood Street, near the former site of the largest homeless encampment in Northern California. Until April, the Wood Street encampment provided some stability and community to hundreds of unhoused residents. Then, after a lengthy battle in the courts, the camp was cleared by Caltrans and the city. So what happens now? The encampment may be gone, but the people still need help and the opportunities and structural problems remain. We'll talk with former encampment residents and government officials about the lessons they've learned trying to help people better their situations amidst widespread anger about street homelessness. We'll be live from Wood Street in Oakland after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We join you live from the former site of the largest homeless encampment in Northern California, off Wood Street in West Oakland, right up against the infrastructure of the Industrial East Bay, as I'm sure you can hear all around me. We were supposed to be joined by former residents of Wood Street, but just a couple minutes ago we got into a dispute over the structure of the show, and uh, they walked. So that's what happened. It's unfortunate. We're going ahead with the show with our other guests. The encampments that unhoused residents of our cities have built are one of the most controversial topics in local life. Talking with people out there, people say to me, why do people want to live there? Is the government not offering people shelter or are people not taking it? Whenever we do shows about homelessness, many housed residents call in to say they just want the encampments gone. But what happens in the aftermath? Here to begin, I'm joined by KQED housing reporter Aaron Baldessari, who wrote a really deep nuanced feature about the end of the Wood Street encampment and what it did and did not offer to its residents. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thank you. You know, I was hoping you could set the scene for us, like, where are we and what was the significance of this place and the broader story of homelessness in Oakland? Yeah, so we're down here, kind of Oakland's western fringe. We're sitting amongst a lot of warehouses, um, transportation industry, recycling facilities, it's kind of, it was described to me as um, kind of no man's land or the edge of the world. Um, and it kind of feels that way. On the other side of us, we have freeway uh, overpasses as the Interstate 880 freeway. And, you know, for a long time, people had been coming to Wood Street. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, it was kind of a, a release valve for the city's marginally housed. People had been bringing their RVs down here over the years. And, it, you know, the population of folks really ebbed and flowed. But, um, you know, sometime around 2019, maybe a little earlier, you know, depending on when you're counting, 
folks began moving kind of underneath the freeway infrastructure, setting up more permanent, um, you know, uh, settlement really. Um, you know, really trying not to use the word encampment because it was so much more than um, an encampment the way that we typically think about it. Mm. I mean, people really built up. Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, people really built up, um, you know, kind of significant structures. Uh, one of the guests that we had hoped to have on, um, Masood Sabiri, he had, you know, a two-story structure. Um, other people had um, just really elaborate um, houses. I, I talked to one guy who was in kind of a yurt-like structure that was built out of all of these um, translucent skylights. Um, and, you know, one woman who even cemented in a brick patio. Folks had really... Uh, been able to do all of that because no one was telling them to leave uh, for a very long time. Um, in fact, a lot of the residents I spoke to said that they were actually directed down to Wood Street mm. as a place where they could go uh, to live. And so, you know, it grew to be one of Northern California's largest settlements of unhoused people. Yeah. I want to bring in our next guest. We've got Lucy Kasdan. She's the director of the Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless. Thanks so much for joining us, Lucy. Yeah, happy to be here today. So how did you see the camp evolve over the years? Yeah, I think, Aaron, you did a beautiful job of describing it. I think that, you know, what I would just add to that in terms of kind of its growth and expansion over time, and well, let me just preface that by saying that we've been providing street medicine services and outreach services mm -hmm. here since about 2017, so I've really seen mm -hmm. the growth and, and the changes. And, and I think that one of the things I would say beyond just kind of the structures and the ebb and flow of the people here is the community. Right. I think there was such a sense of community and safety and, you know, real living together in a way that really made Wood Street a unique place for people mm. and where people really felt safe and part of something bigger. And I think, as you kind of alluded to in your opening, it's unfortunate that we don't have former residents here to really speak to the beauty and, and, and what they were able to really create here um, together. You know, Aaron, at the same time, you know, in the story that you wrote, you know, having put in a lot of this reporting, it wasn't like it was just one place, right? I mean, there were multiple kind of sub-communities that sometimes came into conflict as well, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, whenever you're talking about a city or a neighborhood, you know, it's never a homogenous group, right? There's always going to be um, different factions. And, mm -hmm. in fact, people really kind of, you know, seg segmented themselves off into little sort of clusters or compounds. Um, and it was almost like little neighborhoods within the larger Wood Street settlement. And we were talking about an area that's like over a mile long, right? So, you know, we had on the south end, there was the Wood Street Commons, which was a very kind of built up um, community resource area where there were, um, you know, couches and a free store and a community kitchen. Um, in the middle of the settlement, there was Cobb on Wood, which was um, kind of helped a couple nonprofits helped residents build it. There was these um, kind of hobbit-like uh, structures made of mud and dirt, very um, kind of, uh, they kind of looked like, some people call them like fairy houses, um, but they had a community kitchen there. And then, you know, there's also just people who can't, who didn't live at Wood Street, but came to Wood Street to work on cars or, um, you know, to do uh, illicit activities. So, you know, there was um, a lot of, different types of people at Wood Street and you know obviously like any like any community not everyone gets along um, but I think certainly uh, the the fact that there were these shared resources did kind of help people cohere and see themselves as mm -hmm. kind of part of the larger Wood Street community and and then there are you know factions within that yeah Lucy as, as someone who deals with health care and and health overall I mean 
were health outcomes different for people who were living here or is life you know just living outside difficult enough that that kind of swamps even the the sort of uh, stability and community that we're talking about otherwise yeah i mean i think that what we know and in fact what we just released in our um homeless mortality report is that we know that homeless folks are die about 5.8 um you know, at 5.8% um, more likely to die than the general population. So homeless folks in general die about 25 years younger, right? And the leading causes of death are overdoses followed by kind of acute and chronic disease like heart disease, cardiovascular disease. So we really know that living outside, right, takes a toll on folks in terms of their health comes. Even the healthcare we are able to come out and deliver, which really ranges from chronic disease management to wound care to have you know hepatitis C HIV etc that like even the care we, we are able to deliver to folks on the street that homeless folks are just at such greater risk and and, and diets so much earlier than the, than the general population and that's true kind of regardless of people's situation exactly yeah. exactly we're broadcasting live from Wood Street in Oakland Northern California's largest encampment used to be here before it was cleared in April. Joined first by Aaron Baldessari, housing affordability reporter with KQED, as well as Lucy Kasdan, director of Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, we know that it, it feels different for people who are outside of these places for what an encampment is or should be, even whether they should exist at all. We'd love to hear from you. Have you struggled with housing? Did you know people at Wood Street? And what do you think cities should be doing to get people into safe, stable places? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. And Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram were KQED forum. You know, Aaron, I feel like Wood Street became kind of a symbol of the complexity and difficulty of balancing, you know, the Wood Street community that is still many people are still all, all around us here, as well as, you know, the, the broader residential community of West Oakland. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the reasons this community was allowed to grow was because, you know, there really isn't a lot of housing in this particular stretch of Wood Street and in fact even going you know further along Wood Street as it gets more into where the residential neighborhood like by the train station yeah typically started um, that is actually like fairly new so back in you know 2005 the city agreed to you know redevelop that area um, 1,500 new homes and apartments um, that started getting built and actually that march of development kind of moved its way up to kind of the doorstep of the commons, the, the sort of entry point to the rest of the larger neighborhood. And so I think that part of the pressure is that, you know, this is a neighborhood that's changing. West Oakland has been ground zero for gentrification in the Bay Area. It's a huge part of the, you know, why we see more people on the streets experiencing homelessness. But also, you know, I think it heightened the pressure to clear this area. Certainly there were also safety concerns, you know, number of fires, I think 63 within the span of a year at the uh, settlement. So even before Caltrans really decided to begin evicting residents uh, last summer in July of 2022, you know, uh, there had already been talk of trying to move people out of the area. I think it had been moving more slowly up until that point because 
there were so many people and there just are so few places for people to go. Hmm. So I want to reset a little bit on why we're here at, at Wood Street. You know, these encampments have become this incredible symbol of our homelessness crisis. And I think, you know, outside of the world of people who advocate for unhoused folks, I don't know that I run into just like a person on the street in a coffee shop or whatever who understands why people want to want to stay in encampments. And so we really want to try and understand why encampments, you know, really become what people think is their is their best option and we're hearing some of those things and at the same time we just know that so many of the residents of our cities have just such major and real concerns about encampments as a as a sanctioned solution and i think it's partially an indication of how people have lost faith that there are actual and real solutions Mm -hmm. for the people living outside and also you know the people who are the other residents of the city So for the rest of the show, what we're going to do is kind of focus on the alternatives that might work to support the transition of unhoused people. And how do we bring the parts of encampments that have been successful that we've been talking about here to these sets of alternatives? So we're going to get into that um, after the break. And we also just want to know, you know, this is the first of many shows that we're going to do about homelessness. I mean, it feels like it's the issue that's controlling all the other issues in local politics. We're going to do whole shows on permanent and temporary housing models, the specific experience of women and queer unhoused people, shelter system, racial inequity, how homelessness services are funded and delivered in different places, the relationship between drug use, mental health, and homelessness, and, and more. This is the first show, though, and it was important, we felt like, to begin in a place that had become such a, a, a symbol of homelessness and also... Um, such an important community for unhoused people. So, again, we'd love to hear from you. Given the housing crisis in the Bay Area, what do you think cities should be doing to get people into safe and stable places? The number is 866-733-6786. The email's forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal, live from Wood Street. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're broadcasting live from Wood Street in Oakland. Northern California's largest encampment used to be here, and we're learning about it and also thinking about alternative approaches. We want to add another guest into our conversation. Latonda Simmons is the interim homeless administrator for the city of Oakland. Welcome, Latonda. Thank you for having me. 
So from the city's perspective, why was it important to clear the Wood Street encampment? And it is part of the strategy, both uh, you know, across the state and, and here in the city, to clear these encampments. That, that is correct. But as, as we talk about Wood Street um, the, and the separations in terms of the jurisdictional boundaries, um, Oakland's area, as it relates to Wood Street, particularly the 1707 parcel and rights of way, were about issues of health and safety and then the opportunity to develop permanent affordable housing. In 2018, um, the city had issued uh, an agreement uh, and passed a resolution so that the developers of Midpen and Habitat for Humanity could develop the 1707 parcel for permanent affordable housing. Um, as part of this experience with respect to the closure, the progressive closure of Wood Street across the various areas, um, you know, when Oakland um, began its conversations with Wood Street residents with respect to 1707, there were only approximately 25 people on the parcel. What we saw once the state closed its areas were the relocation of individuals who did not take shelter offers during that process, moving on to city rights of way and then increasing the census there on the 1707 mm -hmm. parcel. And so that was a huge shift in the momentum of how the city had hoped to address, um, you know, closing the parcel um, and, you know, at the aggregation of resources to be able to accommodate the needs of now a much larger census there on the parcel. Hmm. Um, but John, we, did the city yeah. seriously consider the alternative of sanctioning the encampment in some official way? As it relates to public property, um, no municipality is in, the, in, is in the position of being able to sanction an encampment in the way that you mm -hmm. speak about. Um, you're, you're talking about the obligations of conferring land in such a way um, as to somehow um, also extend the risk of what can happen on the land. And I don't think any city is able to do that. But what cities are trying to find a way to do, recognizing that permanent affordable housing is a, is lacking across the state, um, is they're trying to find ways of transitioning individuals into managed circumstances so that um, they can gain access, stable access to some of the very resources that one of your earlier um, guests spoke about, Lucy Caston, in terms of the county. Um, the other piece would be, um, I think it's important that we make a distinction between homelessness and sort of the unhoused state of living. And I want to respect that long before we move to these very complex conversations about homelessness, we had plenty of individuals who, you know, took the position of not wanting to live in structured, you know, facades. And, and it was their desire to live off the land. Now, I do think that as we went through the Wood Street experience, we began to understand that the homelessness tool set is not necessarily ideal for individuals who may wish to continue to live on land. And, and Wood Street was a fine experience there as sort of exemplified, exemplified in the statements from Aaron um, earlier in terms of the community that was built on the state property. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Latunda. What were the results, you think, of the kind of protracted negotiations and, and you know, legal disputes and resettlement plans? Like, how many people of those who were originally at Wood Street got moved into, into some kind of shelter? 
Well, I would say, um, as it relates to the progressive closure on the state properties, the census at that time was approximately 192 people. Um, originally, the numbers were uh, projected to be about 300, but we believe that there was sort of um, an assessment or an assumption based on the ebb and flow, if you will, the in and out of the community, that that would be a peaking number. And it likely incorporated even the numbers of the public rights away because most of the conversations about Wood Street have been about Wood Street proper, all jurisdictional boundaries. So about the 192 individuals, um, you know, there was an outreach strategy that was deployed. Um, the courts required that the city uh, and the county collaborate to be able to make shelter offers and other resource office offers. Um, 192 people were engaged, approximately 89 of those took on shelter options and took on services, others relocated um, and dispersed not just only on the 1707 parcel, but further out. And then as it relates to the 1707 parcel in the city's public rights of way, um, on the parcel itself, um, we were able to get approximately 85% of the individuals with a, with a total number of about 59 individuals moving into shelter from a census of maybe of about 68, 67. Aaron uh, Baldessari, KQED housing reporter. What do we know on a kind of research level about what happens, generally speaking, when you know an encampment gets cleared? Did did you feel like you know based on your reporting on Wood Street, it more or less followed the outcomes that other encampments have taken? And and what are those, or was it you know an outlier? Yeah, um, I want to answer that question, but I also want to push back uh, on something that Latanda had said earlier about people sort of choosing to live. Uh, on the land, so to speak. It, that was not something that I heard from anybody that I talked to at Wood Street, and I talked to a lot of um, people living there. What I heard was uh, a lack of low-cost housing where people could live with some autonomy and dignity. And so the decision to, yes, people made a decision uh, perhaps to live at, at Wood Street or at, in, at other places within the city or within the Bay Area, um, and chose not to go into specific shelter options because of um, very good reasons that we can talk about later. Um, I just wanted to say, just point that out, that you know, it's not so much that people are choosing to live on the streets, it's just that they, the other options aren't as desirable. Um, but back to the original question of you know, just what happens, um, what we know, you know, I, I, I think um, Wood Street is is very similar to a, a lot of other types of encampments around the uh, state, but it's also very unique. So in the case of Wood Street, uh, one thing that uh, really changed the fate for a lot of folks was that residents really rallied together and filed for a temporary restraining order in federal court. And the court actually mandated that the city, the county come together and provide additional outreach services create a plan for where folks could go. Prior to that, Caltrans had given folks uh, in, on the state-owned parcel of land five days to leave and pack up without any real plan for, for where folks would be going. And then, you know, when it came to the 1707 parcel, residents, uh, you know, the initial eviction notice was for early January in the midst of, you know, the historic storms that we were having. And residents again filed for a temporary restraining order. The city did have a plan in that case for where residents could go. And, and ultimately, a lot of residents ended up there at these tiny cabins. But it really took residents coming together and filing for a temporary restraining order because at the time that the eviction was issued, there was no... Um, 
the, that the, the tough sheds were not open yet. They had not been installed. And so without residents actually filing for that temporary restraining order, you know, I don't know where, where folks would have gotten, gone and, and how many of them would have ended up in, in shelter. Mm-hmm. You know, Lucy, one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, all around the region right now, you know, most prominently in San Jose, but, it, but it's all over the place, local officials are kind of shifting resources into temporary shelters, mm-hmm. you know, particularly yeah, these cabin-like situations, the sheds. Mm-hmm. How has the experience of seeing what happened in Wood Street and seeing the way that, you know, people made reasonable decisions to decide that they wanted to go in the sheds or not, like, how has it changed your ideas about what's needed to create something that people actually want to move into? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I I think I just want to also ground us in the fact that, like, in a right, 47% of the homeless population, unsheltered, right, on the street homeless population in Alameda County is in Oakland, right? More than 50%, right, over 3,000 folks are on the street. And it's, and I think that going back to this idea of, of choice, I just want to start by saying that, that, right, we don't have enough shelter beds, right? We don't have enough. So I would say in terms of looking at different options, we want to look at all of it, and I think there are lessons learned from here. And I also just want to lift up in terms of our experience, especially during COVID, during um, Room Key, right, which was a state initiative bringing on the hotels that we really saw in situations where we give people, where we conduct coordinated outreach to folks, offer them something, offer them a safe space on their own that really honors their ability to bring in their pets, bring in their partners, stay as part of their community, that people go, right? Over 90% of people accept that, right? And 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 in, in Room Key, we had tremendous, right? Over 70% of folks exited from Room Key into permanent housing. So I think that we do have experience knowing what types of models work in terms of helping engage folks, bring them into services, and then be able to successfully transition them to housing. And then we know that when we transition people to housing, over 90% of them retain that housing over time. I think in terms of thinking about models like the cabins, um, you know, I, I think that part of it is that people moving in, and this was certainly something, and I don't know, Aaron, if you heard right, but like people making a choice. And I think it's also important to note that the homeless population, I think people think about encampments, but as Aaron and you know, spoke about kind of the various structures here. And there's an increasing number of people living in cars, living in RVs. And so if you're going to give up your RV mm-hmm. to go into a program, you have to trust that you're going to end up in a better position, right? And if I don't trust that, I'm sticking in my RV, right? And so I think that that's where really looking at how the county and city come together to really help support. And this is something we're actively working on, increasing housing navigation so that we can actually improve exits, right? So that we can actually help people not just kind of move from one place to a next, right, whether it's a city or county site or whether it's on the street, but actually, you know, helping people successfully make that transition into housing. Yeah. Latanda, well, given, given what we're here and here, I mean, what does the city, what else does the city need to do to improve these cabins? And are the resources there at the city for you to do that? I really appreciate that question. Um, with respect to what the city is doing, the city is continuing to look at available land to figure out what other kinds of interventions it can stand up on those spaces. Um, to, to your second question, as well as actually working very closely with the county, um, where we've had a tremendous amount of success uh, when we joined forces to be able to uh, aggregate all kinds of instruments so that when we make offers, 
throughout the homeless community and throughout the encampments that we go to, um, that that there's an offering that actually is more suitable to the needs of the individuals who are seeking um, to try to move into the shelter experience or to access permanent supportive housing or to work in, to uh, shift into a, in a, an intervention that would support perhaps, perhaps their family unit. Um, in terms of whether you know, a city uh, is best suited for this work, I'll tell you that Oakland has seen a progressive increase in its homelessness. And I think Oakland had to get into the game because we recognize that, you know, with the levels of homelessness here, that we were seeing an impact to the community. Um, and we were seeing, um, according to the mortality report, the highest numbers of death occurring in the homeless community here in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And so we expanded, I think, into what I would consistently really believe to be more so the work of the county. And I think the county recognized the urgency of what the city was trying to do. But in terms of going forward, um, in order for us to structurally address this, we not only have to look at how we prevent death, um, you know, to the extent that people are exposed to the elements, um, citing the numbers that Lucy mentioned, you know, being exposed onto the streets, but we also have to consider the very creative use of our parcels, um, other instruments that we can put mm -hmm. there. And we actually have to find a way to mobilize the building of permanent affordable housing, which is a much slower process. Um, and, and it's a bigger conversation across the entire state. Um, the state is also struggling uh, with trying to find a way to mobilize across the entire state in every city, you know, the advancement of permanent affordable housing changing zoning laws, um, considering other means of acquisition. But I think you know that, you know, the total cost for the development of an affordable housing unit is roughly at about $800,000, whereas um, when cities are seeing the number of people laying on the street and seeing, you know, the health and the, the um, sanctity of the individuals declining for the prolonged amount of time that they're on the streets and choosing shelter beds, you know, you're talking about an implementation that comes probably somewhere at about twenty or thirty thousand dollars per person, depending upon how you design it. And so that's why you begin to see so much more of that, because it doesn't take three to seven to ten years, depending upon your zoning laws in your city, yeah. to do development. You know, you can probably do these implementations somewhere between six to nine months. And I think that's a conundrum that all cities are facing in terms of how do we maximize the use of the dollars, but how, how do we also address definitely an issue of human the need? Long-term, yeah, and the long-term solutions too. We've got a, we've got a caller, uh, Nori, in Oakland with kind of a, a follow-on on that. Welcome, Nori. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead, go ahead. Great, thank you. Well, um, I appreciate just, um, you know, hearing, hearing some information about this. I, I've been a long time supporter, volunteer, advocate, friend of many people uh, on Wood Street and around Wood Street, uh, housed and unhoused alike. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a local gardener. I've lived here for about five, six years now. I've been in and out of houselessness uh, myself many years. And the main thing I just want to draw attention to is that sense of community uh, that grows from people working together has actually been very productive already. Uh, we, we've seen a coalition of organizations that have essentially been pulled together through the work of residents at the Wood Street Commons. 
And this has provided a hub for reaching many people who would not have had access to services otherwise. Now, no proposals have been written by the unhoused, sent to local lawmakers already. Um, you know, demonstrations of tiny homes that can be up to code that are fire resistant, environmentally sound. Partnerships have been attempted. Um, I can attest <laughs> that the main breakdowns in communication were not on the part of the unhoused of this community. Uh, the main solution is not to criminalize the people or the process of trying to create a, a situation where somebody moves uh, it forward, you know, what we were actually trying to do here, or, or what we would hope that all, all factors, yeah. all people present are trying to do. So yeah. I, I really want to highlight that this community has um, been working on, on a process that would engender a sense of self-determination and trust-building. And, and what we've seen with these cabins, uh, they're not really allowing for that. Um, so, you know, this was the solution that the city directed people to at great duress to, um, you know, removing them. Um, it, it was clear that trash needed to be removed. There was a lot of cooperation on that front. Um, I won't speak more about that right now. But what we're seeing is the cabins are not engendering a sense of, of trust. Um, mm-hmm. Bathrooms are locked arbitrarily. There's not an allowance of personal keys. Um, it, it, it's not a solution. So, so we yeah. do need and to listen to this community a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Nori, thank you so much for uh, for that call and for you know kind of launching us into what'll be the next segment of the show, which is really going to be about try- how we try and bring some of these things that people at Wood Street developed for themselves and and learned into you know these other these other solutions. We're broadcasting live from Wood Street in Oakland former site of Northern California's largest uh, encampment. Joined by Aaron Baldessari, housing affordability reporter with KQED, Lucy Kasdan, director with Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless, and Latonda Simmons, interim homeless administrator for the city of Oakland. Latonda, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us this morning. Thank you again. Again, uh, we'll take some of your calls and comments. If you've struggled with housing, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Be joined by some folks uh, here live in just a few moments. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're broadcasting live from Wood Street in Oakland. This is a site, as many people know, of Northern California's largest uh, encampment that was cleared by uh, Caltrans in the city um, back over just a few months ago. 
Um, we're joined by Aaron Baldessari, housing affordability reporter with KQED, Lucy Kasdan, director of Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless. Earlier we were joined by Latonda Simmons, interim homeless administrator with the city of Oakland. We want to add another um, guest to our panel here. Freeway, thank you so much for joining us, former um, resident of, of Wood Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, Freeway, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? I mean, how long did you live in, in Wood Street? Um, so my husband and I have been on Wood Street for about five years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are still here on Wood Street, but just, uh, we've been re... Um, sorry. No, you're good. Relocated to the cabins, um, pretty much of no choice of ours. Mm. Um, the city keeps reporting that 80% of the residents have taken shelter. What they're not reporting is that 80% of the people took shelter because they had nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. um, it was either go into one of these tiny cabins or be chased around like cattle continuously mm -hmm. and threatened with arrest and having, you know, the state create a danger. Um, and so it was really the only choice we had. Yeah. So what was your setup in Wood Street? Like what, what about it worked for you? Everything, everything worked about it. Um, the entire time that my husband and I stayed on Wood Street, we never one time had any things stolen from us. We were never in any real danger. We never even locked our door. And since we've been displaced, We've, we were, our van was broken into five times cumulatively. Mm. Um, it was wrecked into by a police vehicle that was pursuing a high-speed chase. And ultimately it was stolen and sold right from where it was parked across the street. Um, that's just a few of the problems that we've had since we've been displaced. I mean, what did that feeling of safety do for you? What did that period of time do for you? It gave us the grounds to to build our lives back. Um, the thing the thing about Wood Street is that it's not just a community; it's a family. And in people who haven't seen it can't understand. But this is the first place that I felt like I had belonging and I had purpose. And I just want to explain something, you know, this morning um, we initially had made the stand that we weren't going to come on and there's a reason for that. It's not because we were uh, trying to be difficult or trying to upset the, the flow of things. It's because yesterday morning or afternoon I received a text saying that because Latonda Simmons had voiced a pretty powerful protest against me being on the show that they weren't going to be able to have me on. She has continuously tried to silence our voices. She has continuously lied in court and, and put out these half-truths about what's going on down here at Wood Street. And it's a complete human rights violation, if not a constitutional violation. And people need to know that the person they're supporting and the person that's representing them in city council is not doing a good job. She's, she just placed a whole community of people 
And now she's trying to keep us from telling that story. Well, Freeway, you, you are here now. You are talking to people live right, right at this minute. And I think the thing I'd love you to talk about is, you know, for people who are, who are outside of here, for people who ha have never been down to Wood Street, have never experienced housing insecurity, have never been homeless, what, what should they think about encampments? Like, how should they even try and wrap their, their minds around it? Because I think for a lot of people, I mean, you know, I'm sure you've encountered people, they think like, that's not, that's not a place people should live. Sure. Um, in fact, our own mayor had called uh, living in tents uh, um, undignified, I believe was the word she used. Um, so sure, there's a false narrative that's going around that um, is really toxic and needs to be addressed. Um, to answer your question, I wouldn't try to tell them how to look at us. I would tell them, I would encourage them to come down and make their own uh, opinion. Come down and talk to us. Come down and get to know us. We're not Disney villains. We're not, uh, you know, the, the creepy guy in the trench coat that's going to sneak up on you or whatever. I mean, like, we're, we're human beings. A lot of us have been through a lot of trauma and we're just, and we're just trying to build our lives back. Yeah. And people would do well to spend a few minutes just stopping by to say hi, bring some donations, bring, you know, bring a smile, bring something besides negativity mm -hmm. and, and prejudgment. Yeah. Freeway, you've got a couple of uh, friends here. It's that kind of a beautiful thing, holding hands down here at the end of the table. Do you all want to introduce yourselves and maybe tell a little bit of your story, Manas? Good morning, Alexis. Thank you for having me. Um, I would definitely like to reiterate everything, at least 200% of what Freeway just said, because this is a family for not most of us, but for all of us. And from what happened yesterday with Latana Simmons, her basically telling us that we're not welcome to have our voice even heard. And frankly, there's a lot of positive things that have happened as well, and that's what we're trying to really focus on right now, because this shouldn't be a battle of who wins what. It should be all of us are rising up to be able to win. And that's something that's very important for a lot of people who are out here who, like Freeway said, are trying to restart their lives, re-begin it, re-make new com communications, new relationships, as well as just being able to see their future and it being a proper place that it's manageable. And then manageable turns into joy and spread the joy. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like the city isn't really hearing us about anything, nothing positive or negative about it, and they just really want us to be squashed out. Yeah. Um, from your perspective, Benaz, I mean, are there parts of what you had here that can be reconstructed in, in the cabins or in another solution that the city brings to you that would be better? Like, what, what parts of this, which I see you all enacting and I hear it in your voices and we had it in Aaron's story, like, what parts of that can actually become part of what the city is doing for you? Thank you for asking that question, Alexis, because that's something that we were under the impression that when we met with Latana Simmons over six months ago and basically told her what our concerns were about how the operation was going to be going down and that we weren't going to be blindsided by it because we are strong in people and strong in our front of what we're trying to basically create a desirability for our own like self-independence that 
we just need a little bit of support, not to knock us down, not even to give us a hand up, but to make sure that that equal playing field is there. Mm. Um, when Latana Simmons told us that the people who contracted out, who got the contract for the tiny cabins that are here, that we would be able to enlist an endless list of our, I don't want to say demands, but our concerns and things that would not make it a lateral move, but make it an upward move mm, mm-hmm. to make it something that we can all have a passion for, that we can live every morning and like ring that bell and say, this is what I'm here to do today, mm-hmm. and not feel that the city is trying to hold us back. Unfortunately, from the list that we comprised with Boss, which is the, com- the company that is contracted out to run the tiny cabins, and Latonda Simmons, was everything from having a badminton net to be able to have just a common area with comfortable sitting mm-hmm. where we can still just be able to say, hey, how was your day today? You know, did you make it a great day or did you let someone like roll all over you? And we need that kind of self-counseling and self-resourcing as well. But not one of the things that we asked for, I have to even say, there hasn't even been toilet paper for the past month mm-hmm. in the bathrooms. There has not been potable water to be able to drink. We haven't had keys to any of our units so that we know for our own peace of mind what they're so concerned about, what they're so curious about. So like have a person walk into their unit and say, somebody was in my unit and I don't know who it was and they Mm -hmm. didn't even tell me that they were doing it. Which is very violating of human rights, not to mention grown adult rights. People have also experienced a lot of of trauma and must. Right, and the things that we were very, very prime about were really just swept under the rug and said, isn't this good enough yet? No, our doors can't even lock with a deadbolt. That's not good enough. I don't want good enough anymore. I want the best because we deserve it. We're broadcasting live from Wood Street here in Oakland. Um, used to be the site of Northern California's uh, largest uh, encampment. We're joined by Erin Baldessari, housing affordability reporter with KQED, Lucy Kasdan, director of Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless, and earlier we were joined by Latonda Simmons, the interim homeless administrator for the city of Oakland. We also are joined by some uh, former residents. Um, we're joined by Freeway and Mitaz. Right? Manaz. Manaz. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> All right. No worries. Uh, and, um, and we've got a, a couple of other folks here. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Jared Defy. Sure. And, um, and what's your story, Jared? Um, I've been out here since last August, and I've been doing everything I can to help make the community a better place since I got here. I've been homeless a few times before. And uh, I, f- I found out about this place through uh, John's Instagram and uh, Cobb on Wood, which you may have heard of. Mm-hmm. And um, when I got here, I didn't know how close they were to each other until a few weeks in. And then when I found out Cobb on Wood where it was and that it was actually getting threatened right then and there from uh, the judge's decision to remove everything under the uh, freeway, I uh, spent what was originally supposed to be like a week there before it was removed, but then when the whole community came together to defend the place, it turned out to be almost a month, where I got to experience firsthand the depth of community out here, how when you don't have the support of the city or various organizations, all we had was each other to lean on, and... There's a cohesion there that you can't understand until you feel it directly. 
And when you do finally feel it, and you see it in another community, you want to do everything you can to keep that together. You talk about us having the last of the encampment right here with these two uh, canopies and these furniture here. This is all to create a space where people can still keep that cohesion. We can still meet each other here. We can still talk to each other here. And this is not because the city has granted us anything. This is just because we bring things together because we know where to find each other and we know we can trust each other. Mm -hmm. And that has made everything here. Even when we fight and have a bit of a falling out, but then a week or two later, people hug and say, I'm sorry, I know. That really sucked. Yeah. But that's the thing, because, you know, people get angry, especially when we're so short, because everything we had was taken from us and thrown into a grinder. Yeah. You know, um, we have some comments coming in from, from listeners who are obviously, you know, they're not here. Um, and, Minaj, maybe I'll, I'll throw this to you. Just give me your impressions. I think this is not unlike what, what some people think. Um, Jeffrey tweets, you know, folks sometimes consider the unhoused monolithic. They're not. What they have in common is a need for shelter. But there's a vast difference between economically disadvantaged individuals and families on the edge and those that are seriously mentally ill and or substance users. The solutions need to be more nuanced than, than housing first. Like, what do you think? I mean, it, it does seem that outside of here, people think substance use um, and, and mental illness are driving a lot of what's happening here. Like, do you... Do you think that's true or or not? Well, I definitely have to agree with the fact that there are different, I don't want to say levels of homelessness, but there are different circumstances for everyone's background of how this person ended up at where they are in that mm -hmm. point of their life. Um, to say that shelter is not a main priority to get somebody to open up and trust again, I have to say that... I disagree with the tweeter saying that it's not the place to start from. I believe having that area where the person can just be able to unclench their fists and look at their hands and be able to say, I can make something with these hands again. I can rebuild something within myself that'll help come out and spread it evenly and see what happens. Um, without having shelter, it's just like... When we were in the womb, we loved that little warm nestling area that we were in. And when we came out, it's like, oh, it's so cold, it's so cold. And we got the shelter of, of our mothers that wanted everything to be perfect and, you know, ready for the next step that's going to be happening. Um, as far as resources, I have to say the city has really let us down. As far as resources, right down to he um, basic health needs, basic mental health needs, basic suicide prevention. I mean, unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago, one of our very good friends, he took his own life because for whatever was happening at that moment, mm -hmm. he felt helpless. And I can't help but think it's because how the city is behaving towards us of how they want to fix our problems. We don't have problems. We have challenges. We have challenges every day, just like everybody else does, to get up and say, I need to make something in order for me to have something so everybody can have something. And if we have that mentality... And hopefully we won't be having discussion groups like this. We'll be having different discussion groups. About kittens, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> or cooking. I hear you're a good cook. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. one thing that the city has taken away from me. Before we got displaced and evicted. I'm sorry, evicted due to the displacement. Um, 
I used to cook meals for like 20, 30 people, like big vats of food, and whenever I ran out, went to other people, said, what resources do we have right now within ourselves to make sure that everyone is fed and not just the people who show up, but the people who can't show up on their own because for whatever reason they're having at that moment, and maybe it's raining, and they're only underneath a cardboard box roof, and if they get out of that rain, they know they might compromise what they've gotten, which is a blessing out of nowhere, like a cardboard box can save your life, mm -hmm. you know? We've got to end it there. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. We've been broadcasting live from Wood Street, joined by Lucy Kasdan, Aaron Baldessari. Thank you so much to all of you for coming back and talking with us. I feel like that was really important for our, for our people all to hear. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Rachel Myro. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.